God's Word. Alrighty, before we uh, jump into today, uh, just a couple things. First, uh, it's great to see y'all smiling faces. Um, it, it really is. It's wonderful. Um, but I do want to say also, if, if you still feel the need to have a mask in here, that's perfectly fine. I, I really hope that you feel in no way uh, forced or coerced or pressured. Whatever you feel comfortable with is what we want to love you through. So it's perfectly fine. Uh, and then also, uh, if you saw our email, we're uh, going to take a one-week break from our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount and uh, just felt like there were some things that, through some conversations that I've been having with a lot of you, uh, and then also just kind of the, the time in life, uh, felt like I needed to have a little bit more of a pastoral word for our exhaustion. So, uh, so we're gonna look at a psalm today. Uh, if you'll open your Bibles to Psalm 123. Psalm 123. When you got it, say, got it. Got it. Got it. There we go. See, I'm training you to talk back at the beginning now. So, <laughs> Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we, we pause in order to hear from you today. God, I ask that as you know the the situation of every person that's in this room, you know what they've been through, you know what the last two years have looked like, not just globally, but personally for each person in here. And today, as there is kind of a, a shift, both with daylight savings times and mask mandates, that there's a shift in how life is now lived in Seattle, we still wanna pause and hear from you in the place of exhaustion that many of us still find ourselves, God. And so, Father, I I pray that that you would have a shepherding, loving, rebuilding type of word for your people today. Ask that people would sense the mercy that you extend to us in our exhaustion. Ask that we would see that, that you are not like us, You are sovereign and in control, and that changes the way that we deal and walk through our own personal exhaustion. So would you you speak to us today? Would you unite your power with my weak words and give us rest today? In Jesus' name, amen. Human beings are a lot like the dirt from which we were made. So in the, in the early parts of the 1930s, something very historic happened that uh, no one had really seen and it hasn't really happened since. Uh, so in certain parts of the U.S. Uh, that are usually used to dust storms and uh, high wind type of things, uh, there was an event called the Dust Bowl. Who knows about the Dust Bowl? 
Great. So the Dust Bowl uh, was, a, was a great disaster, usually it, mostly in the Midwest and in the uh, Southwest type of area. And uh, looking back on it, we actually now know why the Dust Bowl happened. Uh, you see, as, as people migrated from the East over into the West, they took some th- certain things with them, including their farming techniques. Uh, so in the 1930s, all these people were making their way West, and they didn't account that their farming techniques that they had brought with them would not actually work well with the environment and with the soil that they were going into. And, and you combine that with the reality of, of drought in the 1930s, and you get this, you get this uh, possibility for the, the soil to be thin and really light, really easy to be picked up by the high winds that are common in that area. And so th- these practices that, that led to the Dust Bowl were done for decades. For decades, the, the people had been abusing the ground, not, not, not adjusting the way that they were doing their farming in order to actually bring about the best product. They were abusing the ground because they knew no better. It's as if in the 1930s that the dirt itself had finally been exhausted, had finally had enough, and from there it was easy to create disaster. And I think just like the dirt from which we were take, taken and made, human beings only have a certain capacity before they reach their limit. We, we only have a certain capacity. Each of us only have a certain bandwidth to handle suffering and struggle. And there comes a time in each of our lives where when the bandwidth of our coping mechanisms is dwarfed by our circumstances. There comes a time in our life where each of us, like the dirt in the 1930s, sigh with exhaustion that we've had enough. We've had enough. We have a certain solidarity with the dirt (laughs) and with the writer of Psalm 123. At some point in our lives, just like the psalmist here, we all say that phrase, I've had enough. We all get to that point at some point. At some point in our life, we sigh with exhaustion. Now, this having had enough is sometimes expressed in somewhat trivial ways, right? I've had enough of these gas prices. You're not gonna talk back to me on that one? (laughs) You're gonna get a hearty amen. I've had enough of QFC delaying my grocery pickup order because it happens every single time. (laughs) Really trivial things. And yet sometimes what follows that phrase of I've had enough is not trivial, but tragic. Sometimes what follows that phrase is tragedy. I've had enough of the negative on these pregnancy tests. I've had enough of my spouse. I've I've had enough of of acting like we're okay when in reality we're we're drowning in conflict and and lost trust. I've I've had enough of the sleepless nights that have taken what I thought would be the joy of of being a, a new parent. I've had enough of the objectifying glances of the opposite sex that bring me back to the moment of my abuse. I've had enough of this years-long battle with sin. This one, this, this specific one, whatever it is for you. 
or many of us sometimes, I've had enough of myself. Each of us come into this room either currently having had enough or with the the painful memory of a time that we did. What What are we supposed to do with these times? If it's inevitable, what are we supposed to do? These times come for us all, so what do we do? When, when you hit the wall, emotionally, relationally, physically, spiritually, mentally, whatever else, E, when you hit that wall, what's the right next step? How do you process that? Well, I, I believe that this short little psalm in here is a whole world of help for the exhausted. If you've hit a wall in your relationships, if you've hit a wall in your vocation, if you've hit a wall in your mental health, in your spiritual life, I really believe that this little psalm has a world of help for the weary and exhausted. This, this little psalm has, for me, for really the last few years, kind of been in, in, my, in my back pocket. And in seasons of exhaustion and weariness and need, it's been a really great help to me. So what I want to do today is just hopefully lovingly invite you into what I think the psalmist is, is bringing to us in our exhaustion and see if it can't help buoy some of us who are tired. And by the way, if you're not tired today, just put this in your back pocket. It's coming. So how does this, how does this psalm help us? Well, we, we see the first signs of help by noticing the person to whom the psalmist is crying. He's, he's in a place of exhaustion. For him specifically, he's had enough of the scorn, of the, the contempt of the proud, the, the scorn of those who are at ease. Those are the specifics of his situation. And in that exhaustion, he cries to a specific person. Who do you think that is? Yes. Easy answer. God, I'm, I'm giving you the easy ones to talk back to me, okay? The easy answer is God. That's, that's easy to guess since we're, we're in a church right now and you're reading from the Bible. But I want us to slow down for a second and really think about who, who this psalmist is crying to. Really, really think about who God is, what it means for God, what it means to call God, God. That, that word, that name is in our mouth as Christians and just normal people so often that if we're not careful, it really just becomes another word. It, ju- it just becomes a, a senseless thought, God. But what does it mean for God to be God? If, he, if he's the one to whom this psalmist is directing his cry, it matters that we know. What, what kind of being is he in order to be God? What does God have to be in order to be called God? It's a big question. Well, at the most basic definition, for God to be God means that he is transcendent. He, he is transcendent. Now, that, that's a big word, but if we were to simplify it, what that transcendence means is simply holy other. That, that, that God is alone in a category by himself. Now, like we always talk about it, Icon, we are made in the image of God, but when it comes to God's being, to his quality of existence, we are completely different. God is transcendent, which means that his existence, 
who he is, his substance is wholly other from us and incomparable. He's far and far above us in ways that we can't even dream of thinking and comprehending. And even that language of far and above, we hear that and we think, that means that I'm down here and God is up here. But we still think that gap is measurable. It's not. The, the, the gap between who God is in his existence and between us is not measurable. That gap is infinite. It cannot be measured or weighed. God is transcendent. Listen, listen to how the theologian A.W. Tozer says this. And by the way, for some reason, the part of my brain that remembers quotes turns on Sunday morning, so we don't have a slide for it, but just tune in, okay? I'll get better. Grace for everyone. He says this, we must not compare the being of God with any other. We must not think of God as the highest in an ascending order of beings, starting with the single cell and going on up from there to the fish and to the bird and to the animal, to the man, to the angel, to the cherub and to God. This would be to grant God eminence, even preeminence, but that is not enough. We must grant him transcendence in the fullest, fullest meaning of that word. He says, forever God stands apart. He is as high above an archangel as he is above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, but the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other in the scale of created things, are nevertheless one in that they are alike created. They both belong in the category of that which is not God and are separated from God by infinitude itself. So I, in terms of my being, my class of existence am made, which means I right now in that category have more in common with this metal pulpit than I do with God. I am closer to that in my grade of existence, my class of being, than I am to God. God is transcendent. That's the one to whom the psalmist is crying. And more so, this God, as the psalmist lays out, he says that he's enthroned. You remember that verse? To, to you I lift up my soul, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. God is the sitting king from eternity on. That this one to whom we're supposed to be expressing our cry in our exhaustion is enthroned. He is king, which is really good news for criers like us. It's good news because for God to be enthroned means that he has authority. To, to say that God is enthroned is to say that God has all authority. He has the authority of decision. God can decide what he wants. No one stays his hand. No one says, you can't do that. God gets to decide what happens in this world. And you know, that, that's part of the reason why we get so exhausted in our seasons and in our circumstances and our suffering, because we don't have the authority to decide. Part of the reason you're so tired in your exhaustion is because you do not possess the authority 
to actually decide a change. No matter how much CrossFit you do, no matter, no matter how many blueberries you eat, you do not get to decide how long you actually live. Now, is there responsibility to take care of our bodies? Of course, but you don't have the authority to decide when you live and when you die. But God does. We're, we're not the master of our fate. We're not the captain of our soul. The one to whom we cry is enthroned, which means he has authority. This transcendent God who is high and above everything else, who alone is not made, he has authority. But not only that, to say that God is enthroned is to say that God is sovereign. Not only does God have the authority to dictate and decide what happens, but he actually has the sovereign control and power to direct what he decides. And again, he directs all things. There is no circumstance too large or too small for it to be out of God's sovereign power to direct. He's in control of everything from the molecular paths of dust particles dancing in the morning sun to the planets orbiting around, our sun, around the sun. God is in control. He is sovereign. He is enthroned. And so, we don't run to a well-wisher in our cry. We don't run to someone who would simply wish us well, give us a good sense of, I'm sorry that's happening to you, but I can't do anything about it. We cry to a God who is sovereign. God is not weak. God is not surprised. God is not overwhelmed. In your season of exhaustion, you need to hear that. God does not drive an ambulance. God is not showing up just at the right moment, being thankful that he made it to you in time before something worse happened. God is in control. God is not surprised. And all of this matters when it comes to our crying to him because it actually can get us in a good place to continue crying. When we pair God's transcendence his existence above everything else and his authority and his sovereign power, when we see these things paired together, here's what we see. We see a God that exists far above all the daily problems and frustrations and exhaustions of our world. And at the same time, a God who through his authority and through his sovereign will is directly working in your life. There's a God who's above everything else, who, can, who cannot be compared to anything in creation, and that God chooses to direct his authority and his sovereignty for your life. That's the God that we cry to in our exhaustion. And this is going to all come together, but we've got we to nail that down. That's the person to whom we cry. But then also the, the psalmist gives us a, a posture when we're crying, right? When we're crying in our exhaustion. We have a God who is transcendent in his being, who's also deeply involved in our personal lives. But with that in view, what we see in this psalm is about how we should cry to this sovereign God. 
Look at, look at verse two with me. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. We wait for God in patience. That's the, that's the, if you're just taking notes, that's the answer. What's your posture? Patience. When, when, when we've had enough, when our circumstances have outdone our ability to cope, we cry to God with a cry that is marked by waiting. Now, now, now in this, the scriptures are not advocating for us to always expect that our timeline and our seasons of exhaustion is going to be different from God's. That's, we shouldn't be cynical like that, but it is teaching us to not think that we can bind God's movement by our expectations. We, we can't bind him to our will. Many times we have to wait in order to receive an answer of help from God. The psalmist here, in his own exhaustion, is putting forward the posture of humility that acknowledges our timeline does not twist God's arm. And you, you see the picture there, right? You see a, a servant knelt down. That's what he lays out. A servant knelt down, his hand outstretched to their master, waiting for the answer from their master that the toil is over. You're waiting. You're not choosing when you clock out of the season. <laughs> You're waiting on God himself to give an answer. And so we don't bitterly expect that God's timeline is always gonna be different than our own, but the scriptures do demonstrate a humility that's ready and willing to be bound to the timeline of another, maybe a timeline that we wouldn't prefer. And this is where we go wrong. In our seasons of exhaustion, when you've had enough and some pastor gets up here and says, you gotta wait. I already know in your mind you're thinking, no way, man. No, no way do I have any more energy to wait. But what other option do you have? In your exhaustion, when you've had enough of life, what other options do you have? Let's play them out. You can wait on this sovereign God who gives us mercy, which we'll get into, or you can medicate. You, you can medicate your own pain. And I want to ask you, how's that gone for you in the past? How's that worked out for you, trying to solve your own exhaustion? How's that worked out? Trying to heal your own wound, trying to heal where you've had enough. How's that worked out? It always works out worse than when it began. Like this, the, a couple weeks ago, my daughter and uh, Courtney and my, my son, they were watching the seals over by Ray's, you know, best spot to, to find some seals. And there's a little grating over there uh, on the deck that my daughter was running, 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 and just hit and fell down and scraped up her knees real bad. And my daughter, that might as well be like open-heart surgery for her, you know? So it's just <laughs> utter crisis. Um, but but when, when we get home, um, we're, we're going to put a Band-Aid on um, and, and she insisted, like insisted, <laughs> that she be the one who puts the Band-Aid on. 
Now she's four, and she's a very uncoordinated four-year-old, which means that the Band-Aid did not go where it's supposed to go, which means what? I've got to be the person who tortures her by taking the Band-Aid off of the open wound and putting it in the right spot. That's a, that's a simple illustration, but that's exactly what we do when we get tired of waiting on God. We try to fix our own pain. We say, fine, if you're not going to do it, if you're not going to come through in my timeline, I, I'll take care of it myself. And inevitably, whatever you apply to that exhaustion might end up having to get ripped off again, which only exacerbates our condition. And so the psalmist here invites us into the humility of patience. In our exhaustion, when we've had enough to simply repeat with the psalmist, till he has mercy upon us. Not, not until my expected timeline has expired. Not until I'm tired of waiting. Not until doubt, doubt tells me that it's foolish to keep crying, but rather till he has mercy Upon us. I think that word, till, is one of the most significant words in this whole psalm. On that word hangs every bit of exhaustion from this writer. That's not, that's not a small word for him. You, you can almost picture the humanity of the psalmist in that word. On that little word, until, hangs every daily sigh, every tear soaked pillow. All the temptations toward doubt hangs on that word. But yet in that word, at the same time, also exists a quiet, humble, convictional resolve to believe that the arrival of God's mercy is sure, and so he does not have to rush things till he has mercy upon us, till he has mercy upon us upon us. That's what the psalmist lays out. We've got a great God. When we're in exhaustion, we've got a God who's far above everything else, who's able to dictate and decide and direct everything that is. He possesses the power to change your circumstances. And even in that, we are called to wait. We are called to be patient in our season's of exhaustion. So let's do some theological math here. When you get a transcendent and enthroned God that can do what he wants and add to it your own personal season of waiting and exhaustion, what do you get? I would say purpose. If you've got a God who's able to do anything he wants, and yet you're in a season of waiting in your exhaustion, what that tells me is that there's something purposeful going on. That, that something is happening as you're waiting. There's some instruction going on. There's some pruning going on. It, it means that the waiting is headed somewhere. It's not purposeless, it's not meaningless, and it's not even endless. And that's important for us to grasp because without purpose, the only thing you can do is medicate. Purpose paralyzes you. Or the lack of purpose paralyzes you. 
if we don't believe that something's actually happening, we will not have the strength to continue to wait. The lack of purpose paralyzes us. But if we have purpose, if we believe that there's some purpose, then we can actually capture, I want you to hear this, we can actually capture the season of our exhaustion and have it work for our good in the long run. If you believe something is happening, that God is doing something, then even when you're tired, you can do the things that will eventually lead to relief, lead to you walking in the mercy that he talks about. You see, too often, we use our exhaustion as the excuse for not seeking the remedy we need. You see, this is, a, this is what's interesting to me. This, this psalm right here, you see that little subtitle? A Song of Ascents. You know what that means? That means that this psalmist and the rest of Israel would take this psalm as they ascended to the temple of the Lord. They, as they climbed the mountain in Jerusalem to, to meet with God, they would sing this song. And I find it fascinating that they chose to sing this song. <laughs> that as they were moving, they chose to sing about their exhaustion. Is that not strange to anyone else? They didn't use their exhaustion to be paralyzed, but rather because they believed that God is sovereign, they believe that there's some purpose in their season of exhaustion, so they're still gonna do the things that will eventually remedy their pain. They give themselves to God still. In your season of having had enough, friends, in your weariness, don't make the mistake of neglecting what will nourish you. I know you're tired. Like, I wanna to talk to you as a human being right now. I know that you're tired. I know that the idea of any sort of spiritual disciplines in your life feels impossible. I understand that, but just start small. Seek the Lord in small things. You know when a human being is actually about to starve to death, you know they can't like shove a burger down their mouth, right? Sorry, something healthier I guess they would do. <laughs> Dominoes, yeah. Mm -hmm. They can't do that. No, they've got to slowly feed them. They've got to slowly nourish them back until they're able to have a full meal. I think that's so illustrative of what it's like for many of you right now. If you're exhausted, if you're spiritually, emotionally, relationally starving, don't feel like you've got to get in the Bible for an hour and a half. Just read a verse. Just slowly give yourself to what will eventually nourish you. Because if you don't, Here's my, can I tell you just one of my worries? I feel like I have a lot of worries as a pastor. One of my worries is that for a lot of us, the last two years we will look back on with regret. There will come a time where we recognize that the last two years were primed with opportunity to meet with God in ways we never had before, even in our exhaustion but we neglected it because we were tired. 
We're going to be filled with regret because we didn't capitalize on the season in order to be closer to God. And then eventually things just slowly get back to normal and you get lost in the humdrum of everything that carries you away from the presence of God. I'm worried that you're going to regret what you did not invest in over the last two years. Even in your exhaustion, seek the Lord. Ascend like the Israelites. The mountain of the Lord, singing even your own song of exhaustion, believing that his mercy will come. And that's where, that's where I want to end here. Mercy. How do, we, how do we endure in our exhaustion? How do we seek the Lord? We believe that there is an experience of mercy that is enough. The psalmist here describes mercy as the relieving moment, right? When God removes the, the culprit of our exhaustion and brings us out of our season of waiting. However, mercy, I think, is not just the finish line that ends our season of waiting, but it's also what gets us through. There's a type of mercy that can get you through in your exhaustion, that can give you the strength to wait. What is that? What is that type of mercy? I think it's the mercy of God's sympathetic experience. Listen, in, in Hebrews, there's a, there's a few different spaces where Jesus is described as a sympathetic high priest in order that we, in order that we could have mercy and grace in our time of need. In other words, mercy and grace when maybe we've had enough. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as sympathetic because he's gone through everything we've gone through and can now be sympathetic towards us. In, in our waiting, we, we, we don't have to lose heart. We can actually be nourished by the mercy of God because the power of the sympathy of Jesus Christ for us in these pressing times. The sympathy of Christ can be the scaffolding that keeps everything else held up from being dashed on the concrete of despair below. It can keep us going, friends. Seeing that, that we don't just have a God who's enthroned, that's true, but we also have a Savior who is enfleshed, that Jesus Christ took on flesh, meaning not that he just took on some human skin, but the God who is transcendent, who is authoritative, who is sovereign, willingly entered in to the experience of being a human being in a broken disappointing, exhausting world. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that. Jesus understands what it's like to wait. I mean, when you, when you look throughout the Gospels, how many times did the crowds try to immediately make Jesus king because they thought he was a great guy? Or in the temptation of Satan, one of them, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you all of this authority. I will give you the authority over the nations. Jesus refused each one of those instances. He decided to wait. Jesus refused to get quickly what he knew God would give him eventually. Jesus knows what it means to wait. Jesus has a sensitive heart for you in your exhaustion. He knows the sorrow of having had enough. The prophet Isaiah calls him a, a, a man of sorrows. And it's this man that gives us his sympathetic mercy. Jesus knows our exhaustion. And I would put forward 
He actually knows it better than we do. There's a writer in the 17th century named uh, Thomas Goodwin who wrote a book called The Heart of Christ. And in that book, he explores uh, actually that text in Hebrews about how Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. And he basically, you know, this is what Puritans do. They explore questions that aren't in scripture sometimes. But he asked, you know, it's, it's easy to say that Jesus had a sympathetic heart towards us when he was down here. But now that he's enthroned, Now that he's like ruling over everything, is he still as sympathetic towards us as he was when he was here? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. And in that book, he talks about how Jesus being a man of sorrows and walking through what we've gone through is actually a a worse experience than much of what we go through. You see, Jesus was without sin, which means a lot of different things, but one of which means that he never experienced jadedness in his exhaustion. You see, for us, when when we've had enough, when we're tired, when we've been hurt, we tend to get an edge on us, right? We we tend to get jaded as a self-protection method. I don't want to get hurt like that. I don't want to be exhausted like that again, so I'm just going to lower my expectations. I'm I'm going to get cynical. It begins to harden our heart toward the experience of sorrow. But Jesus never gave himself to being jaded, which means that every sorrow he had, every sorrow that you've gone through, he felt with a tender, soft heart. He felt the full load of every sorrow. He bore the weight of every cross. And because of that, he knows our pain even better than we do, which means, of course, he can be sympathetic towards our pain. The experience of a sympathetic mercy can help us in our exhaustion. Jesus' hand, having known what it's like to walk through sorrow, is a hand that we can hold on to, friends. We can trust that we will receive in waiting on this Jesus and feeling and sensing his sympathetic mercy toward us, we will have the grace and mercy that we need in our time of need. So where are you exhausted today? Let me ask a very pointed question. What in your life right now is just making you want to punt on everything? Is there a wound? Is there an exhaustion that you feel that really makes you want to just give up? Whether on a relationship, whether on yourself or whether on God himself. Whatever that exhaustion is, friend, like the psalmist here, you have a God that you can cry to. He's not afraid of your words. Whatever you're tired of, you can bring it to this God. You can wait on him. You can believe that he's in control and you can sense and receive the nourishing, sympathetic mercy of our great high priest. Let's pray and and enter into a time where we can begin to maybe give some of that exhaustion and offer up some of those cries. Let's pray. Father, Whatever doubt right now, 
is louder than the truth of your mercy, of your faithfulness. God, I, I pray that in the name of Jesus, you would overcome that by your spirit. I pray that sons and daughters of God that are in this room right now, that are secretly, quietly in their hearts, tapped out, whether from life, whether from family or relationships or parenting or marriage or just themselves or just the headlines. God, I pray that you would, you would bring a sense of refreshment in this room right now. Yes, we wanna wait and yes, we, we will wait, but God, we're asking for a touch of your spirit to sense your refreshing presence, to feel and to know the sympathetic mercy of Jesus Christ. So God, whatever cynicism or jadedness or impatience or doubt has walls around our heart, God, would you, would you blow those down and allow us to come to you with sincerity in our cries, not hiding from you what we're really feeling, but trusting that you're a living God and you are able to begin the process of healing. You are able to, to bind up the brokenhearted, to give mercy. And so as we wait, would we believe that great promise that those who wait on you will never be put to shame. They will actually mount up on wings like eagles. They will actually walk again and not get weary. They will actually run again and not faint. Convince us by your spirit of that promise. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.